Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in to Front Row Knowles. And a big thanks to longtime sponsor of this program and this podcast, the Dunlap Champions Club. Obviously, as I speak, we don't know what football season is going to look like. And like most things associated with COVID-19 and the coronavirus, there are plenty of questions and not necessarily answers. So this is what I'd like you to do. Whenever we get some more clarity about football season, know this. The Dunlap Champions Club will have a plan. It's a great venue to take in football if spectators are going to be allowed this fall or whenever football season kicks off. There's shade, there's food, there's access to adult beverages if so inclined, and you can believe that they'll have as solid a plan as anything uh, involved at Doak Campbell Stadium in terms of keeping things sanitized as uh, we try to play this football season. So that said, thanks again for their longtime support of this program. I encourage you, if you have questions or want uh, some answers as to what the plan might look like, call 644-1830, option 1, for more information or to schedule a tour. And now, without further ado, Front Row Knowles. Broadcasting live from the Prime Meridian Bank Studios in the capital city of Tallahassee, this is Front Row Knowles with Tom Block and Keith Jones. Front Row Knowles is brought to you by Cornerstone Tool and Fastener, online at ctf.nu. Now, here's Tom and Keith. Good day, everybody. Welcome to Front Row Knowles. Tom and KJ back with you. Keith, how are you, sir? I am doing well, doing well, although I am getting frustrated. We've been wanting new things to talk about, but we wanted them to be on the field, and every new thing ends up being off the field. Such is the nature of a pandemic, and I agree. I look forward to second-guessing whether you should have thrown or run on third and two, or should you have kicked or gone for it when you were at the opposing uh, the opponent's 41-yard line. But alas, those are not the conversations we've been having of late. We do have a good show ahead, as we always do. Bob Ferrante will join us from the Osceola. We'll ask him about the topic of the name of Dope Campbell Stadium and everything else that's going on uh, specific to Florida State. And then we'll widen the conversation with David Hale from ESPN. He covers all things ACC and college football. Was on the FSU beat for a little while, but has good perspective particularly has spent a lot of time covering Clemson for obvious reasons in the last few years. And Clemson had big numbers on the COVID-19 front of late. So we'll, we'll chat with David. You promised me David would have all the answers. So I'm looking forward to that. Well, let's hope. I don't know if he has all, he'll answer all the questions. I think that's what I said. I don't think I said he'll have all the answers. I don't know, Keith, just as a starting point, we'll talk about this with Bob and David. We, we ended our show last week, and we were both in agreement that things have been moving forward. You know, we're kind of checking the box, getting closer to starting the season on time. And then, lo and behold, the last seven days happen, and all of a sudden everybody is pumping the brakes saying, wait a minute, are we still moving forward on time? And I don't have an answer to that question. I do know that it's one that everybody's asking, meaning ADs and presidents do, because regardless of whether you're uh, – hold up in your house and, and, and taking every precaution possible, or I don't want to say throwing caution to the wind, but you're not as concerned about COVID-19, whatever side of the aisle you fall on, it's still a question that has to be addressed. And, and, and ADs and presidents and conference commissioners are having to, to ask that question. Well, and the pendulum swing is much wider when you talk about college athletics, because on one hand, you've got the, they're going to be in each other's faces and, and we've got the trainers and the, and the managers and the folks that work in the cafeteria and the assistant coaches 
and then you overlay that with the fans if they're allowed to. And then way on the other side, you've got a group that says, look, these are 18 to 22 year old superbly conditioned athletes. This thing's not going to affect them. Uh, as I've talked about, and I don't mean to belittle anything, but it's, you know, I've never had an ulcer, but I've been accused of being a carrier. So, <laughs> so you know, it's not going to affect them, but maybe they've got it and they infect someone else. And you've got that big swing of that pendulum. And, and I, you know, I think we all would have our personal um, ideas or opinions, but I don't know who is the actual correct person and what the actual correct procedure might be. Another thing that's going to happen, maybe it won't be as bad this year if the other professional sports are playing since we potentially are going to have NBA and NHL and Major League Baseball all in the month of August. But normally what happens is football practice starts on August 4th and you get all excited about it for a week. And then you realize it's August 11th and you still have three weeks until there's a game. Well, now this year we're starting two weeks before that. So it's going to be the longest preseason camp ever coinciding with, oh, by the way, we are playing the West Virginia game is scheduled or no, we're not. And we're not going to open at home against Sanford. I mean, all these questions are still there. There's still balls being juggled in the air. And the, the one other thing that complicates it, because normally you don't associate with what's going on at the professional level is how that impacts the collegiate level. But what if Major League Baseball or hockey or, or the NBA has an issue and it causes them to shut back down? What will be the ripple effect of that on collegiate sports? Uh, it is an interesting, interesting time. I think if I was an author, that might be how I began my book. Well, I'll look forward to it, Keith. And I'll tell you what, we can have you on this show so you can promote your book whenever you, whenever you write it. You, you know, I've got the title, right? <laughs> yes. I've got the title. Accuracy of Movement. There you go. <laughs> I've, I've done this show with you for a few years. I'm well aware. <laughs> Oh, goodness. You haven't asked me to write the foreword yet, and I'm not sure I would if you, if you asked me to. Well, but I'm I do sure know the I would, title of the book. I'm not sure I would take your foreword if you wrote it. <laughs> uh, we want to encourage folks to uh, move forward to Madison Social, to Centrale, to Township, to Soto. Continue to uh, support uh, uh, Matt Thompson and folks who have been, been big supporters of this program for many, many years now. It's uh, certainly been tough times for them. That's well documented, so I won't go down that road again except to say we appreciate what uh, they do for us and they appreciate what you do for them. We'll get to our Osceola insider, Bob Ferrante, right after this on Front Row Knowles. Front Row Knowles on 97.9 ESPN Radio is presented by Hobson Chevrolet of Cairo, Georgia. Get your best deal the Hobson way. Now, back to Tom and Keith. Welcome back to Front Row Knowles. Tom and KJ with you, and we are pleased to bring our Osceola insider, Bob Ferrante, to the program. We open up that Earl Bacon Agency hotline and say hello to Bob. And, Bob, we're going to start with the most positive piece of news I think we've had all offseason. I'm speaking somewhat in jest, but white 
numbers back on the jerseys. I mean, this is headline material. This is about all we've had to sing sing praises about of late. Yeah, this was, I think when the video came out on social media Thursday night of last week, it, it caught everybody's attention immediately, even though we knew it was coming because the school had announced it last August. I, I had fun doing some reporting on a story about, you know, sort of the backstory, how this came together. And it was a, a year-long collaborative process between athletics, the football staff, back when Roy Taggart was here, obviously, between Nike, trademark and licensing, you know, even the retailers, um, because there's so much lead time here where you have to coordinate with everybody for sales to the public. So this really started in May of 2019. And then, of course, what you saw last Thursday was that cool video with, with the jerseys being broken out. And it's the classic look. It's the look that I think we all associate with Florida State. And, you know, hopefully everything goes well for us back on the field in September, and we'll see them wear that jersey when they play West Virginia. And, Bob, you bring up a good point. Some may say, well, why in the world would you spend 12 months making a simple decision, going from gold to white? But the reality is the merchandise and the trademarking, you do that immediately, then you've got – maybe millions of dollars worth of stuff out there that quote unquote isn't really sellable anymore because it's not what is current. So you got to let that way out. You got to move it in. Uh, it, it's a much bigger thing than just going from gold to white. Right. And something I didn't understand either was retailers actually get paper catalogs, you know, like magazines and they select the merchandise sometimes a year out. Um, for a specific season, whether it's cold weather or warm weather or for football season, basketball, baseball season, whatnot. So they are choosing so far out in advance that this planning, it's just part of what every college has to do. It's not FSU specific. So folks like Garnet and Gold, who are local fanatics, which is a national you know, online site where you can order, there has to be this lead time. It, it's just, it's got to be done. It's got to be built in. but you know, really kind of good to see this come together and the timing hopefully will work out quite well. I think the next obvious question is when can you get your hands on a jersey? And it sounds like that's going to be later in July, maybe early August. There have been some supply chain disruptions because of COVID. But, you know, with, with football season starting in September, we hope, you know, you'll be able to get your hands on those jerseys just in time to wear them. Bob, we've had one overarching question for months, and to this question, we can now add another. So the overarching question is, when will Florida State play a football game? But now we have to ask, when they play a home football game, will it be at Doak Campbell Stadium? Because obviously, Kendrick Scott filed a petition, former linebacker at FSU, to change the name of the stadium. I know that President Thrasher has assigned – A.D. Coburn to look into this. I would think that this would be thoroughly vetted and not a quick decision, but I don't know. Do you have any insight you can offer on that? Yeah, I think David Coburn is going to assemble a working group. You know, it could be part athletics and boosters staff. It could be historians, researchers, librarians on the FSU campus who will, you know, collaboratively look at the writings of, of Doak Campbell, who was a professor for years and years before becoming president in 1941. They can go through newspaper interviews with the Florida Flambeau, the Towsie Democrat, and others, and really come to a conclusion. 
is his name deserving of being on the most recognizable building on Florida State's campus? And I, I think right now, do we know the answer 100% for sure? I don't think we fully know. I think this goes beyond a Google search and a Twitter debate. This needs to be thoroughly vetted, to use your term, before we, we move forward with the next step. Part of that discussion, unfortunately, is not going to include somebody that I think would have been a terrific resource. Uh, the Florida State community lost Dr. Jim Jones this past week, a, a long, long time history professor at Florida State, uh, uh, probably one of the most recognized scholars uh, in, uh, in Tallahassee and maybe even in the country. He was a Civil War uh, uh, individual. He was a, 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 someone who studied, wrote six books on the Civil War. I would love to have had Dr. Jones's perspective uh, in conversations like this. And of course, our, our, our best wishes go out to his family and his passing. Tremendously gifted scholar. Uh, on things that might play into the discussion on this topic. You know, I'm disappointed. I, I did not know Professor Jones. I did not take his class, but I've heard so many wonderful stories, you know, through social media and reading stories in the Democrat and elsewhere about his career and who he taught. And, you know, that, of course, there was the old joke that, um, you know, how did you know to take his class? Well, my grandfather told me to take the class. <laughs> it was the best he, he class taught, my grandfather ever took. <laughs> he, took genera he, he taught generations of FSU students. I think that's, that's really neat that he, you know, affected so many lives and so many generations. It, it, he'll be missed. And again, I, I wish I had known him, wish I'd met him, but, you know, perhaps in the coming months can, can read some of his books and get a better understanding of him. So back to my overarching question, Bob, Boise State this week, who's on FSU schedule, been a lot of conjecture ever since that contract was signed about whether FSU would ever go to Boise. Now in this COVID era, we're still asking the question. They've had to shut it down this week because of uh, several players testing positive or student athletes. What's your sense right now? We're going to talk more deeply with David Hale from ESPN next segment about, you know, what the season looks like in terms of, of starting on time. Where are you on this right now based on numbers at Clemson and LSU and really every program that's had student athletes back has, has had at least some test positive. You know, I, I hate to say this is the, the unfortunate expected headline. I think that, that all these schools are encountering these numbers. It's, it's difficult to hear. And, and we worry about the safety of, of players. You know, I, I worry about the parents who are sending them off to, to schools and, and hoping this is the right decision for them as parents too. Specific to Boise, I think you can get from Tallahassee to Boise on a charter plane. You're not going through airports. You're avoiding a lot of the general aviation issues that the public might have. So in that sense, I don't see Florida State versus Boise. You know, logistically, it's a long flight, obviously, right? But it's, it's not any different than, say, another opponent if it were a three-hour flight or three-hour drive or whatnot. The challenges, though, are are numerous. You know, are all schools keeping the same standards of trying to contain a, a bubble? That's that's a big question. Um, how does this affect your roster if you have large numbers of positive cases and and players don't recover, don't test, and they're still testing positive for weeks and months later? This is a real challenge. I don't think anybody has any good answers here. I think. 
a lot of commissioners and a lot of people are looking toward mid-July as a point where we start saying, okay, now we really have to start making some firm plans. Is this an opponent that, for example, Florida State can play? Or do you have to remove this game from a schedule and start looking at an alternative opponent? And I'm not saying that anybody has done that yet, but I just I get that feeling that mid-July is sort of that time frame where you're coming up on six weeks, eight weeks, two months away, and you really have to start making some tough decisions about playing those games on schedule or pushing them back. I think if the first game of – if Boise hadn't already come to Florida, if this was the start of a two-year home-and-home, it might be an easier conversation for both schools to say, hey, how about we remove the cancellation clause and we both save our budgets a little bit and we stay closer to home. But, but since Boise's already come here, if the season starts on time, it feels to me like FSU will return that game. Now, the season might get pushed back or condensed and you're only playing conference games. That's a different issue. But we'll see. Keith, I'm sure I, I stepped on you there, so jump in. Well, again, the biggest question is we are coming upon, let's call them benchmarks, where you are going to have to start making some decisions. And, um, you know, we're just going to have to wait and see. Um, and, and the other thing, and I'll certainly be interested in David uh, Teal's observation about, you know, who makes that call or how does, how does that consensus come about given all of the competing priorities and differences that exist in college football. Um, it, it's, as we've said, it is interesting times. You know, the other consideration too for Florida State is, is playing West Virginia in Atlanta. That decision will be made by the governor of Georgia. Um, how does he handle that along with, you know, consulting with health officials and also that guarantee of, of 4.25 million each school is contingent entirely on ticket sales. So the capacity of attendance, how many people can watch that game in Atlanta, is a huge consideration. Is it 25, 50, 75% as the full 100? You can definitely see a scenario where, where the full um, amount will not go to Florida State or West Virginia. And you know schools have to budget in advance expecting a certain amount of money. So the complexities of these decisions um, as it comes to non-conference games, it's, it's what, what are you going to do about Boise, West Virginia, of course, Samford and Florida. So there's a lot of moving pieces here. I don't think the West Virginia decision is one that FSU can make on its own unless they want to burn every last bridge they have with the Chick-fil-A bowl. I mean, to me, that's a, it's a conversation. It's a three-way conversation with WVU and the Chick-fil-A Bowl. And if you can't have anybody in the stands and the Chick-fil-A Bowl is going to lose money to have to open the stadium, maybe then you look at it. But I, I know that Florida State, when they scheduled Alabama home and home, that initially started as a conversation to play Alabama in Atlanta and the Chick-fil-A Bowl until both universities figured out that they had open dates in consecutive years and they more or less pulled that game off the radar for the Chick-fil-A Bowl and schedule a home and home. So I'm saying that to say that, uh, you know, Florida State probably didn't want to sour that relationship any further, and it would be a three-way conversation. Let's talk on the field here uh, as much as we can. Anthony Grant, uh, a lot of promise when he came in and then was missing in action last year, and we thought he was back, and now word comes this week that he's no longer on the roster. I don't know what you can add to to the reason that we haven't seen him the last two years. And, and then secondarily, what does that mean in terms of Florida State's stable of running backs? 
you know, we had her going back, you know, even to the tail end of last season, I, I think Kaylin LeBourne was, was out for the Florida game. And, you know, that was announced on the, on the game day down in Gainesville. And I remember reaching out and trying to find out is, is Anthony Grant available to play since you're basically down to Cam Akers and the walk-ons. And, you know, when we heard that Anthony Grant wasn't available, I, I think it became very much clear that, that he wasn't going to be part of the program moving forward unless things had dramatically changed. And clearly they have not. So, you know, of course, we wish them the best moving forward. And I think Florida State has done a, a really good job of rebuilding the, the running back room after losing Cam Akers. You know, they, they brought in Jay Sean Corbin from Texas A&M and, and got him the waiver. So he's able to play this year. And of course, they've landed a ton of recruits at that position between Lawrence Tofili, the, um, the signee out of the St. Petersburg area. And, and brought in some prospects from Louisiana, as well as LaDamian <laughs> Webb. That's a name I'm going to have to work on. LaDamian Webb is a JUCO prospect, um, very heralded prospect out of Alabama. So that's, that's all to say that Florida State doesn't have that known guy at running back. There's no Cam Akers. There's no Dalvin Cook. But there's a lot of candidates who I think can do a running back by committee approach or Norvell opens up that camp in July, evaluates him for six weeks and says, I really like this guy and that guy. And he rolls with, with two primary backs. You mentioned Cam Akers. Hard Knocks for HBO announced that uh, I guess it's both L.A. teams are going to be featured this year. So we're going to get some Cam and we're going to get some Derwin uh, behind the scenes. So that's something to look forward to, I guess, assuming that, that sports stays on track. What else you got are you working on on the Osceola right now? But I know you're like us. Let's get to mid-July and get a decision. Let's, let's have some news. We're, we're definitely going forward. We're definitely holding until this date. I mean, we need something concrete. You know, it seems like it's been a, a long summer as far as coverage from March through now, and, and, and maybe July will, will give us a, a break as far as seeing some vision for how we return to the field. It's been fun talking with a lot of the Knowles on our happy hours lately and, um, you know, hearing them tell stories about the past. One of the things that Pat Burnham and I are working on is we, we want to catch up with, uh, with the Knowles who are now high school coaches. And uh, so in the coming weeks, look for stories from, uh, from us where, where Pat's caught up with a few guys. I'm going to reach out to a few of them. I think the overarching theme is that these are guys who played here 80s, 90s, 2000s, and they're passing on the wisdom from from Bowden and, and the tree of coaches, and um, teaching it on to the to the new generation at the high school level. And really, if you look at high school coaches across the state, there are so many I, I couldn't even start to begin naming them that played at Florida State. They were graduate assistants, so it's it's really neat to see them talk about you know how they are passing on that wisdom. Look forward to that. Bob Ferrante from the Osceola. Listeners, uh, log on to theosceola.com. Encourage you to test it out and subscribe. Appreciate your, uh, your update and your insight as always, Bob. Take care, guys. All right, Bob Ferrante. We will uh, continue the conversation about will there or won't there be a season that starts on time. David Hale from ESPN joins us next. Stay with us on Front Row Knowles.
Front Row Knowles is brought to you by the Osceola, dedicated to FSU sports and fan experiences. Sign up for a free trial at theosceola.com or call 833-FSU-NEWS. Welcome back to Front Row Knowles. Tom and Keith Jones with you. We are going to open up that Earl Bacon Agency hotline, the Earl Bacon Agency, ensuring your future together. Say hello to an old friend. We had to get the lawyers involved here to make sure that Jeff Cameron didn't own exclusivity and that we weren't breaching a non-compete with David Hale from ESPN. And, and fortunately, uh, the lawyers legal was able to work that out, and we can say hello to David Hale. How are you, sir? I, I assume by lawyers you mean you had a rock, paper, scissors match with Jeff, and that that's how this all came out. Yeah, actually, It was cornhole. Get- <laughs> cornhole, David, cornhole. Yeah. We didn't even give Jeff a heads up. He'll just have to find out like our listeners do. You know, it's a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. And this week we got you. How are you, first of all? You doing okay? Um, Good. I'm good. You know, living the dream of working from home with two small children. Um, You know, it's what we all had aspired to when we were young, I'm I'm sure. But yeah, no, things things could be much worse. That's for sure. Well, I do want to commend your uh, patience passion, probably enthusiasm. I follow you on Twitter and you've been willing to engage on every topic, whether it's Black Lives Matter, COVID-19, why do you hate Clemson? Why are you on Dabo? And I know that's part of your job, but I think patience may be more than anything, given some of the replies that I've seen. So <laughs> kudos to you for, uh, for opening those can of worms, I guess. I think the, the key is if I have uh, like trans, if I have a long interview, I need to transcribe to write a story. Uh, it's really good motivation to just go on Twitter and argue with people about things. So it's uh, <laughs> patience really is probably part of it, but the bigger part of it is just a lack of a good alternative for something to kill time with. Well, and that's right where we'll start because I feel like this is where we've gone on college football was a couple months ago. Well, maybe the season will start late. Maybe we'll play it in the spring. Maybe we'll wait till April and play it. Well, how's that going to mess up the NFL draft? What about the Northern schools? And then all of a sudden we got to this space where we're going to start on time. The players are back for these, you know, non-voluntary, voluntary workouts, whatever they're called. And it doesn't seem to matter anymore what, what the testing numbers show. Mm-hmm. And we're just going to start the season on time. I mean, that's a brief synopsis of the last eight weeks of our lives. But what are your thoughts on where we are right now, given what we've seen at Clemson and LSU here in the last couple of weeks? Yeah, I mean, look, th- this was sort of an inevitability. I, I read a, a piece in The Atlantic, uh, I don't know, probably about six weeks ago now, about how pandemics end. And, and they made a important distinction that there is two ends to every pandemic. There is the medical uh, expertise ending, whereupon uh, the rate of repetition of the virus goes to a certain level in which it is no longer a concern. And then there's the social end in which society, that, that particular society just gives up on caring about the measures. And I don't think we're anywhere close on the first one. I think we have already passed the second one. Um, and, and particularly when that comes to sports, I mean, there is, as schools started opening up, as states started opening up, I, I mean, my, my biggest question was not that necessarily it was the wrong decision to make. I think there's, there's a value in discussing that, but what changed? Because to me, nothing had changed. And I think we're seeing the results of this now when uh, numbers are spiking across the country. And then particularly when you have these uh, you know, massive outbreaks within uh, particular 
programs. And, and look, you could make a case that, that Clemson and LSU, they're the lucky ones because this is happening in June and not in October. And we're almost inevitably going to get to a point if we just try to play football as normal that there's going to be a game, you know, Florida State's going to be playing Georgia Tech or playing uh, Wake Forest some week or something like that, and the game's going to have to get canceled because 30 players from one team test positive for COVID-19. I mean, this is uh, – I mean, I don't think this is a question of if it'll happen. I think it's really a question of when it will happen at this point. And so we're sort of just saying, like, we're going to push forward and hope for the best, and whatever we get out of this is better than nothing. David, there's the argument that's made, and, and I'll be honest with you, I fall on this side more than, than Tom does, that we should go ahead and embrace the fact that this is happening if, and I'm not an epidemiologist, but if getting through this and getting it behind us makes us quote-unquote immune to it before we get the uh, vaccine. Uh, I, I don't know what side is correct. I don't know what side you fall down on, but uh, there are plenty of people that that hold that argument and say, well, they're young, it won't affect them. Uh, I think that's a little bit naive, but there's there's maybe a little bit of thought to it. What do you think? You know, look, I think it's funny because I feel like with this, the vast majority of people seem to come down on one of two sides of it. This is a, a massive, terrible disease that everybody is risking their life by uh, going anywhere near another human being. And then the other side is, well, it's no big deal. I don't know why we're overreacting so much. The truth is, I think it's probably somewhere in the middle of all of that, that there are some safer ways to go about our lives uh, and that there are people who are at higher risk and lower risk. But, but here's the thing. One, there's still so much we don't know about this. It feels like internally, like we have been dealing with this forever. But realistically, we have been giving this serious thought and research and education for a handful of months. There's so much we don't understand, whether that's how the disease is transmitted, what uh, immunity really means and how long it lasts for, um, what, what the long-term ramifications of this might be in younger people who aren't in you know, real morbidity-related uh, dangers here. So I always start from that premise of like, we, we can't assume we know too much because even the people who are way, way smarter than I am about this don't know enough yet. But the other thing that I try to remind people is that it is about more than just the players here. Yes, the likelihood of an 18 to 22-year-old elite athlete dying or suffering severe immediate health consequences from this is relatively low. Uh, now, that said, if you take 105 athletes at 130 FBS schools and you say, well, the percentage chance of, of any of them having severe problems of this are less than 1%, well, that's still a handful of guys. Um, and so that's not nothing. Uh, but the other thing is it's way more than just the players. So we have coaches, we have administrative staff, you have the families of players and coaches, you have the, the folks working in cafeterias and in dorm rooms and, and the people that they interact with. And then the other thing that, that, look, I think it would be great to assume that we can bring people back onto campus and they will follow all of the guidelines that are in place. But that ain't exactly what's happening in the rest of the world right now, uh, which is why we see such a high uptick in the number of younger people who are becoming infected. So, 
uh, you know, we're seeing this with, with Major League Baseball. I know the Phillies, the, the outbreak there with the Phillies at their spring training is because a bunch of Phillies players went out and had beers together somewhere. So it's, I think there's just, you know, it, it's, there's, there's a plan that might sound good within a bubble if you just kind of ignore some of the reality of how the world works and how people make decisions and who they're interacting with on a daily basis. But reality is a lot more complex than that. And so that's where I kind of come down on this. Yes, I think most athletes can probably be exposed to this in some level without massive immediate repercussions. But the story to me is that there's a lot more going on there than that. And we need to be aware of that. And and that that also doesn't, you know, we're sort of ignoring the fact that like with the NFL or NBA or MLB, they've got a players union where there's representation that guys can kind of make a decision uh, you know, the athletes get to make a decision about what they want to do. That's a much more gray area in colleges. So um, sort of dictating the, the health needs of uh, players, I, have, I, I worry about what, how far we're walking out on that limb. Obviously, university presidents, conference commissioners, they have those same worries. So what is the t- – when, what is the tipping point that would swing this back the other way to we're not going to start on time? And, and who's making that call? Is it literally the five power five commissioners based on input from their university presidents and from the TV networks? I mean, how is this decision going to get made? Yeah, this is one of the things that I've mentioned from the very beginning of this that was going to be an obvious conflict for uh, or complication for college sports is that as opposed to just sort of a commissioner and a players union making a decision, you've got 130 school presidents, 130 ADs. You've got the five power five conference commissioners and the five group of five commissioners. You've got 43 different state governors. You've got all these municipalities. Um, There's just, there's almost an impossible scenario in which there's going to be a consensus among leadership. And even at that point, who is leadership here? Like who ultimately takes responsibility for these decisions? Because here's what I can tell you. Nobody wants responsibility for these decisions because at the end of the day, if someone does end up very sick or dying because of this, uh, you don't want to be the guy who said this was okay. It was my, it was my job to make this decision and I decided to take the risk. So um, that's an inherent problem is that there is no clear defined power structure that is going to, to take responsibility for this decision making. And, you know, you ask, like, well, what, what would change things? I think we're, we're in a, an interesting scenario right now where people are sort of seeing the reality of what return to campus means. And, and the crazy thing about this is we're returned to campus now and seeing these, these outbreaks in places like Clemson and LSU. And this is without full, full practices where guys are like running into each other and, and full teams. This is without literally tens of thousands of other students being on campus at the same time. Like these are under best case scenario conditions and we're having this. So what happens in August when campuses are effectively reopened? I think if, if the NFL or Major League Baseball or the NBA runs into problems and has to shut down again, I think that would probably be a deal breaker for college sports. Uh, I think certainly if, we end up with a player or a coach hospitalized in any sort of serious le- at some sort of serious level. I think that would probably be a deal breaker. Um, but you know, the, part, again, part of the problem is it's 
almost impossible to guess what the future holds when there's just still so much that we don't understand about how this disease works. David, one other thing comes to mind that's kind of in that macro. We don't have an answer, but we'll, we'll quote unquote waste some time talking about it. And it's not a waste because it's good dialogue. But you talk about the, the players association, which college athletes don't have. One, one of the things I've seen as an older person that played the game and now looking at the youngsters is that their perspective is a little different. So you've got, you've got youngsters saying, I'm not going to play until the state changes its flag. Uh, you've got youngsters saying the coach called me a name, not a necessarily thought of terrible name, but not a good name. So therefore that coach gets suspended and it gets investigated. Where does that pendulum fall on, on if there should be some representation for the college kids and what might that look like? Yeah, look, this is uh, a really good and interesting conversation. I think that um, we're probably a long way from having real movement on because the NCAA doesn't ever move very quickly on things and, and the power structure being what it is, it is, uh, you know, players are grabbing power any way they can at this point. Um, and that's really what we're talking about here. We're talking about a power dynamic, whether this comes into a discussion of what's safe for them to return during a disease, whether it's issues of race and how uh, coaches and programs are dealing with it and all, all of this stuff that's going on. I think is about a shifting power dynamic socially, but particularly here as we're talking about it within college sports, where I think players have realized they have a platform and people will listen to them. There is a, a moment in society right now that has empowered them. And there is a sort of a tipping point of numbers in which enough of them are speaking out and supporting each other that there is some comfort level in doing it. Now, I think it's a little bit of a double-edged sword and, and, and look, I'm very supportive of players having more power in this conversation. I think that needs to happen. And frankly, I think the NCAA benefits and schools benefit from giving players more power and responsibility here. Uh, but you start asking when things kind of cross the line or when they overstep boundaries or how prepared some of these guys are for the responses that are going to come from when they speak out like this. And, you know, I, I don't want – Thing. I don't want somebody to say something that is so regrettable that it undermines the overall um, changing landscape here, because I think that's important. And it's, you know, it's been a while since King Coulter and the guys at Northwestern attempted to unionize his players. I would be very curious to see how that same storyline would be different this time around if it were to happen again. You know, frankly, as we debate name image likeness and, the NCAA is essentially throwing up its hands and asking the federal government to make up the rules here, uh, and players get no say in that. Uh, as as we say, a very diffuse uh, power structure tries to decide what's safe for players to deal with upon a return to campus. As players speak out on issues of race, and and again, yes, yeah, some of them are bigger than others. Uh, I think it is a good reminder that probably coaches need to be aware of and adapt and adapt to a changing culture here, a changing society. But all of these things could probably be better said through a centralized voice among players and athletes and better argued and debated and, and rights better fought for in a more organized fashion. I mean, there's a, a value and a power that comes from being able to put out a tweet and say, my coach screwed this up. But the downside is it's a tweet at the end of the day. And we've already seen, you know, Truba Hubbard comes out and has this 
massive mind blowing thing about not playing anymore. And then, you know, <laughs> three hours later, well, me and coach made up like there's got to be a better way to handle all of this. Uh, and, and I think, again, is unionization the answer on that? I, I don't know. But I think that having a more clear and concise voice and showing these players how best to utilize their platform is probably uh, a move in the right direction. We're talking with David Hale from ESPN. So along those lines, I want to ask you about the Marvin Wilson, Mike Norvell uh, situation. So, you know, I'm a Florida State guy. So my perception, and I don't know Coach Norvell that well at this point, uh, I give him the benefit of the doubt in my mind that it wasn't an intentional or premeditated uh, phrasing that he used. Uh, I don't really have a problem with the way Marvin exercised his, his presence on social media to speak up. But then I thought that Norvell handled it well in that he, uh, you know, he owned it. He apologized. They had a team meeting, they moved on, but that's the FSU guy. So from your point of view, and you covered this program for a few years, how did you think that that played out and how it was handled? No, I, I'm with you. And, and a couple of things that you said there that I think are really worth pointing out. You, you don't know Mike Norvell super well. These are the players, right? I mean, he's new there and they didn't get a spring practice out of it. So to me, that was always sort of the underlying uh, issue here is that there was not years of trust built up among the team and Mike Norvell. Um, and so that I think that helped expose something that, that was a little out of Mike Norvell's hands, to be honest with you. Um, I didn't have a problem with Marvin speaking up the way he did. And the thing that I thought that, that Mike Norvell did so wonderfully here was that he thanked Marvin for doing that and bringing it up. Now, in his own mind, was he thrilled to have this laundry aired publicly? I'm sure he was not. But that's recognizing what's happening on the bigger picture. And one of the things is I've talked to athletes who have been speaking out um, about why they're speaking out. One of the things that I keep hearing again and again is that because the power structure in college sports and football in particular is overwhelmingly white, uh, and we've you know, certainly had a, a lot of hand-wringing over the years about the lack of diversity among coaches and ADs and all of that. But that, that, that power structure goes beyond that into assistant coaches, into uh, administrative staff and all of that, that, that also tends to not look like the players they're representing or have the experiences that the players that they're representing have had. And so sometimes it's really hard for them to tell their story. It's hard for them to go to a coach and say, hey, this is, I'm angry about this, I'm upset about this, and really feel like they were heard because – maybe the coaches just simply don't understand their platform. And when I keep hearing coaches say like, well, I wish they'd handled this in-house. Well, part of the problem is the, the, the reason that they're not handling it in-house in is because they didn't feel comfortable doing it. They didn't think they were going to get a result that way. And so the way that Mike Norvell handled it by thanking Marvin Wilson for bringing it to not just his attention, but the world's attention to me shows an understanding that, look, I don't know all the answers here and I can't put myself in Marvin Wilson's shoes and know his experience and, and so I respect the fact that he stood up for himself. And, uh, look, I, I, again, I don't blame Norvell for much of, of anything that he said. I mean, I'm sure he could have said it better. But, you know, three months ago a coach says that and, and nothing happens from it, right? He was playing by a playbook that we'd all played by for a long period of time. I just think the playbook's changing right now, and Marvin Wilson helped explain why that's the case. Speaking of the playbook changing, Florida State and Norvell, how about on the field? What's your impressions of Mike Norvell, and what do you expect in terms of what he'll mean for FSU, assuming we play a season? And I realize that this year's not going to be a great judge of that. There was no spring practice. You might play a week and then have to forfeit. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen. But just in general, 
What are your impressions about what Mike Norvell can do for FSU? Well, look, he comes in with a clear and concise plan, which is sort of, to me, the biggest thing, right? I mean, with all due respect to Willie Taggart, there was a lot of talk about culture change and all of that when he got here, but I didn't see um, that clear, concise, this is how we're going to win type of plan. I think Norvell knows what he's doing. He's got success under his belt. Again, is it an overnight turnaround? It's going to be hard to do given all of the complications that we have this year in year one. But I think, you know, frankly, the Marvin Wilson thing probably did more to build that team chemistry than could have happened in a spring practice anyway. I'm relatively high on Florida State. I don't think that means 10 wins, but I, I could see seven or eight wins this year as being a really, really good starting point in the right direction. David, one last question that's kind of related to the conference more so than Florida State, and, and it's very recent. You may not have had a chance to study it, but I'm just curious what your thoughts are and, and what was the reasoning for changing the, the kind of the structure and going to a board of directors for the Atlantic Coast Conference that's made up of the presidents and the chancellors versus what previously was in place? Yeah, you know, I think part of this comes back to exactly what we were just saying about sort of the diffuse power structure. But but a bigger part of this, and I've talked to so many ADs who have said this during this the shutdown, that it was an opportunity to take a step back and evaluate how we were doing things. Um, and I think everybody has sort of realized, particularly at the Power 5 level, we need to give schools more power. NCAA is offering us very little. Let's empower the people who need to be empowered here. Um, I don't think they mean players, but I think they mean, you know, they mean their, their ADs and their presidents and their coaches. And, uh, and so I think that's a, a big part of this. And it won't surprise me if we'll see the other Power Five leagues making similar structural changes. And I think at the end of the day, the long-term ripple effects are going to be that the Power Five is going to effectively become an independent um, governing body. I don't think that – I think that, that really the NCAA has showed its weakness – uh, again and again, but particularly of late, it's just been so obvious to the Power Five leagues that they don't need the NCA nearly as much as the NCA needs them. Uh, I don't, you know, is this a massive shift in that direction? Probably not, but I think it's a small step towards what is an inevitability there. Well, we need to wrap up, David, but I, I don't want to infer here, but are you suggesting that as we get these next round of TV contracts done in the mid-20s that the Power Five may be calling their own shots on this and band together? I think that's probably more likely than not at this point. Um, and look, that's not based on some sort of inside information. It's just me kind of looking at the landscape and saying, what's the most logical outcome here? Um, you know, again, even if we're just talking about the power five, that's 65 uh, ADs and, and five conference commissioners that have got to get on the same page about a game plan. And that's not always easy either, but Money being the thing that talks, I think that the Power Five understands where their bread's getting buttered and, and who's doing it. And I think, are we in for the same type of massive structural changes that we saw during realignment the last time around? I, I don't know. My guess is we'll probably see some of it. But I think that it, this will be more systemic changes in terms of how we handle things. And particularly, look, in the next couple of years, we're going to see some real changes just in, in name image likeness and, and stuff that's happening with players too. And, and the, the fact of the matter is if, if you come, if you look at what's happened over the last few months, it has been glaringly obvious that big time college football is running on a completely different level than every other sport in every other conference and division. And I think embracing that is probably good for the sport in general. 
David, we'll let you go. Great insight. And I look forward to seeing uh, tweets and, and reading your work that's actually about what happened between the lines, if we can ever get back to that. <laughs> I hope we're doing that soon, too, guys. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, we'll David. take a break. Keith, there's a lot to react and uh, unpack in the next segment. We'll do that after this right on, uh, on Front Row Knowles. I felt so good, like anything was possible. Hit cruise control and rub my eyes. The last three days. Front Row Knowles on 97.9 ESPN Radio is presented by Hobson Chevrolet of Cairo, Georgia. Get your best deal the Hobson way. Now, back to Tom and Keith. We are back on Front Row Knowles. Thanks to Bob Ferrante for joining us from the Osceola. Also, David Hale from ESPN. Good perspective, sort of micro to FSU and macro to college football and college athletics. I, I want to pick up uh, where David left off. First, I want to thank Ron and the folks at Cornerstone Tool and Fastener who have, have been big supporters of this program and of uh, ESPN Radio Tallahassee for a long time. So I encourage you to go visit them at one of their two Tallahassee locations. They'll help you out with all your do-it-yourself projects. That's Cornerstone Tool and Fastener. And maybe we should get Ron involved in how to reconstruct what Power Five college football's governance structure looks like, Keith, because that's really the can of worms that, that David Hale just opened. And, and I think we've – this whole pandemic has given all of college athletics a chance to step back. Now, granted, there's consternation because they need budget dollars. But it's allowing them to assess, well, maybe whenever we get back to normal, we should spend less money and not pay our coaches so much, or we should do things differently, or we should schedule regionally and not nationally in some sports, all these other things. But, but then when you look across the country, it's, it's going to allow them to maybe force this conversation in, in, in complement with the TV contracts, which will be up in a few years, to say, hey, uh, the Power Five needs to take care of the Power Five and, and not have the NCAA – try to do it for us anymore so I'll, I'll stop babbling here and let you react to that and and what David said at the end of last segment well I, I don't know how it will play out but I think the items the, the the building blocks of what this ultimately will look like on down the road consist of a few concrete things no pun intended number one if the television contracts do not expand in other words if there's a contraction in the amount of money that the networks are willing to pay to air uh, programming, that will have the desired effect of reducing budgets, obviously. No, no science there. If those contracts continue to expand, then we're going to forget everything we've law remembered or learned over the last six or eight months because that's just human nature. So to me, the money is going to be the driving force. Number two, the complications associated with managing through COVID-19 for 2020 football season, I think is going to uh, alert everyone and solidify everyone that they've got to have a single voice, a single mechanism to run big time college football. Now you can agree or disagree with that, but I think that's the reality. And so the more complications they are, the more will be the resolve to come up with something to do that. And I think the compromise, I mentioned this to you in the break, I think the compromise with the NCAA 
is you say to, to the NCAA, you can continue to manage the basketball tournament because we like that format. It seems to work. We love the fact that you've got the Middle Tennessee States and the, the Gonzagas of the world that don't even play football that are dominant players or Cinderella stories in the basketball tournament. So we're, we, whoever we is, uh, are, correct me, uh, are going to say to the NCAA, you can keep the basketball tournament, but we're going to take the big five and whatever that looks like, and we're going to break them off, and we're going to negotiate as a group with the networks to present college football. And then the last part of that puzzle all revolves around the NIL rights, and we've seen Senator Marco Rubio from Florida has already filed or is beginning to file legislation at the federal level that will basically say the NCAA has the right to set up the parameters of that. And you put all those blocks together uh, as driven by the needs that have been demonstrated by COVID-19. And I think that's how we get to whatever that ultimate structure looks like. What do you think? I think we need to get to one voice for the Power Five. And the natural time for it to happen is when these TV contracts are being done. So I've long been in favor of this, but for for lesser reasons that aren't the cash dollars. The officiating drives me crazy. We've talked about this many times that it's points of emphasis are different in every conference. Instant replay is different in every conference. You need to get the power five together and have the same set of rules, nationalize your refs. So we stop thinking that that was an SEC ref that made the call against FSU or whatever it is, eliminate the perception of bias. Uh, You could look at things like a uniform set of rules in terms of whether you're going to allow schools to play FCS or not, because the conferences hold that against one another. We're not playing any FCS schools. Well, this, this conference does. Number of conference games. Number of conference games. All those things could be determined and become, become uniform. Now, a lot of folks would argue that that's, that takes away what college football is, the uniqueness of college football. The bigger thing I think ultimately for the survival of college football, and we've only touched lightly on it, the TV revenue is so out of whack in favor of the Big Ten and the SEC right now that as currently constituted, at some point there's going to be a $50 million per school divide between an SEC school and FSU. And widening that beyond FSU, it gets to a point where it's just not a level playing field between the Big Ten and SEC with all the dollars they have. So could you get to a point where you pool your TV rights together and you split them among the Power Five instead of splitting them by conference? Obviously, that's a great scenario for the Pac-12, whose network has failed, for the Big 12, and for the ACC. But to get the Big Ten and the SEC there, there'd have to be so much more money in the pot that they're not really stepping back from where they're going to be as is out on their own. And I don't know if you can get there. I just worry about the future with the revenue getting so out of whack. Well, except that if there is a contraction, if the ultimate dollars that are available from the networks to college football ends up going down because of whatever reasons, there is a, a train of thought that says, well, we can mitigate our losses if we negotiate as five conferences as opposed to one individual conference. And so that's why I began my part. I don't know that I'm right, but it's my opinion. 
that it's going to deter what's going to determine more than anything is the available resources when those contracts come up. And there are plenty of people that say that it'll continue to be unlimited. It'll grow by another X percent. I don't know that. I, I think there might be a restructuring of how we deliver entertainment in, in, in the United States, given the fact that we've all been home uh, well, and have learned. What, what you're referring to is will the bubble burst, and that's been predicted for decades on the sports media front, and it never has. If they were redoing the TV contracts right now, I think that might be part of the conversation. But in the same way you expect athletic budgets to accordion back out once we get past this, a couple of years from now is when they'll be having the serious TV free negotiation talk and the budgets will have accordion back out. And I don't think there'll be a contraction there. If we're still in a contraction state on TV dollars in three or four years, our economy as a whole is, is not in very good shape, period. Uh, so hopefully we're not there. We are out of time, though, Keith. Once again, we will leave the show with more questions than answers. I hope our listeners We're good at that. Have you noticed that? that? We're really, really good at that. We are. We are. It's one of the only things we excel at, as a matter of fact. And uh, the good news for us, Keith, is we have another hour next week where we can ask more questions and not answer them. Folks, until then, he's Keith. I'm Tom. Thanks for tuning in to Front Row Knowles. Education. We don't need no thoughts control.